This Bible talk from Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 15 is entitled Grace-Fueled Living in This Present Age and was the fourth keynote address of TGCA's 2022 National Conference. The speaker, Richard Chin, is a member of the TGCA Council and serves as the National Director of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Stephen Langton was the Archbishop of Canterbury, 2007 to 2028. He brokered the peace between the king and his rebellious barons by drafting the great Magna Carta, the great Charter of Freedoms in 2015. I don't know if you know any of that. It's a bit nerdy, isn't it? But here's the thing. He was the one who put chapter divisions in our New Testament. Did you know that? The Archbishop of Canterbury did that. They can do some things good. (laughs) Verse divisions came later. Verse divisions were devised by a French scholar by the name of Robert Estine in the 16th century. You know, the story goes that he was dividing the verses in Scripture uh, on horseback uh, while he was trying to meet a printing deadline in the rain which kind of tells you why perhaps we don't have verse divisions in the right place sometimes, doesn't it? And you kind of wonder, hmm, it's not just a French thing, it's um, horseback. <laughs> and it kind of explains, I think, and, and I, you know, Murray was getting at this, I think, that it, the word for there begins you know, our new verse, but it probably should go back, I think, to verse 10, because it is the reason that is taking place in terms of that wonderful exhortations of application in chapter 2, it's the reason, right? Because, and uh, I've just put things up on the screen for you, Titus 2, verse 10 and 11, because I just want to show you from the text itself, regarding the slaves that we heard about this morning, show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive, for the grace of God has appeared, right? It's because the grace of God has appeared, The word for or because in verse 11 gives us the primary reason for all the wonderful commands of chapter 2 that we heard brilliantly exposited this morning. The verses that I have the incredible uh, privilege of speaking from now, therefore is, can I put it this way, the motivation headquarters for the rest of the letter. It's as if the Uh, What we've heard so far are the pumping arteries uh, for the body, but what we're going now into is the left ventricle, the right ventricle, the heart that is pumping the lifeblood out into the church. We have the, the motivation headquarters, the content of the sound doctrine that Paul commands Titus to declare. It's the healthy teaching that his appointed elders are commanded to instruct It's the knowledge of the truth that fuels the godliness. This is the dye that soaks into the very fabric of all our good works. And now we get to soak in this dye for the next few moments. I know we've prayed, but we've just got to pray again. Just got to pray again, don't we, when we come to this. So please pray with me. 
our Father and our God, as we come to these precious verses, please help me to get out of its way. Please do your work in our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you. And we beg this for Jesus' sake. Amen. For the grace of God has appeared. Again, the word for shows how the grace of God introduces and expands on what God our Saviour is like. It's God's grace that appeared embodies his actions as our Saviour, our Rescuer. And the gracious action is spelt out at the end of verse 13, is it not? Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. You know, we're in a world where you're lucky if someone will cross the street to help you, as we just heard about in Paddington, Brisbane, let alone Paddington in Sydney, let alone the mad streets of Melbourne that we've heard about. In a world like this, where we are lucky to have anyone cross the street to help us, God crossed the universe to help us, didn't he? Humbling himself as a man, giving himself for us to the raging ocean of righteous wrath that you and I deserve. And this is the grace that appeared 2,000 years ago. But there's more, isn't there? That is, Titus 3 sharpens this event even further in verse 4 and following. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, there it is again, right? Referring to his first appearance. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, Gary obviously will speak to these precious verses after lunch, but for now, please note some obvious parallels. That is, God's kindness and love also appeared to save us. Not by what we did, but by what God did when Jesus died and rose to, note, justify us. And when he ascended to his Father's side, being enthroned and poured out his Holy Spirit to regenerate us, renew us. That is, the grace that embodies God's actions as our Saviour is the grace of Jesus' first appearance that encompasses not just his death alone, his substitutionary death, but also his resurrection to the right hand of his Father, his enthronement on Acts 2, and the pouring out of his Spirit as well. This is the grace that should bring us to our knees, shouldn't it? It's the kind of grace that should intellectually stagger us and, and emotionally stagger us and, and cut us to the heart. 
his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit, that's the grace that appeared 2,000 years ago. This is the grace that ought to delight us over and again as we sang to be the greatest treasure, the wellspring of our souls. I take it that we're parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, no doubt related somehow to the snotty-nosed two- to three-year-old somewhere, somehow. And isn't it amazing that sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of the time, you can actually see them delight in things that just seem so seemingly boring and repetitive? Do you know those things? Uh, you know, a baby might uh, just pick up a ping pong and then just throw it down and then they'll just laugh and, and they could just keep on doing that infinitum forever and ever and ever. You had that experience? When one of my daughters was three years old, we went to a park uh, and she somehow drank some uh, Sprite. Uh, we called it lemon water for her. And she would take a sip and then we said, shall we go for a run? And she goes, yeah. And so run, 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 run. And then she said, again? And sip, run, 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 sip, run, 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 sip, again, 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 and kind of be like, what? What's going on? But it's just so seemingly repetitive, boring to us sophisticated adults. But for her, it was the wellspring of her soul, wasn't it? A delight just to keep on repeating over and over and over again. Is that not what should be the case for us? as we come to the first appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep hearing again and again of what Jesus has done to die the death that we deserve. Of his resurrection that vindicated him. Of being enthroned where if we could see the the ceiling open up, we would see Jesus seated at the right hand of his Father now. Of knowing the, the spirit that he's poured out, continually poking us and speaking to us from his word primarily, why that is something we should rejoice in over and over and over again as a child delights in something so seemingly repetitive. Do we delight like that? Do we pray, teach it again, Lord, teach it again? What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? And this is the grace that appeared for no, all people. His incalculable grace that has appeared to offer salvation to all people throughout the world. In Melbourne and Madagascar and Moldova and Malawi and Malaysia and people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Their places don't start with the letter M as well. And verse 11 should alone be motivation for us to pray for the nations. Great to hear about Singapore. Do you know I actually grew up in Singapore? Uh, I'm born in Malaysia, came out here, so I'm a very mixed bag. But it's lovely to hear of these nations isn't it, and what's going on in the world. And verse 11 should be motivation alone, not only to pray, but to seriously consider going to the nations. But here's this more again, more for God's people that this grace offers, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say, 
No to ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. What is this present age? Well, when Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago to die, rise, ascend to his Father's side, pour out his Spirit, he dragged in the new age into our age to create the overlap of the ages, the last days of this present age. And so in God's great plan of salvation, please note there is only one more thing on the agenda, isn't there? Only one thing. His return. And in light of that, we've got to live in a particular way. And until then, we find ourselves in this paradox of this present age where every believer engages in the life and death struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, whilst at the same time rejoicing the fact that we have already overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil because of the grace that appeared in Christ 2,000 years ago. And it's a great tension. A small wonder Paul describes the last days in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy this way. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. Did you know that? The complete opposite of that directive that was there for every people group in that beautiful church without self-control brutal not lovers of the good treacherous rash conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having a form of godliness but denying its power sounds a bit like crete doesn't it have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think this is where Augustine got his idea of describing sin as disordered loves. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. This disordered love lens. If you were in the elective with Chris Watkin yesterday afternoon, that's what he was describing, right, from one of Augustine's lenses in terms of understanding our culture. It's here. It's a disordered love. And it sounds like the experience of our brothers and sisters here that we've just talked about over and again with City on a Hill. Because we must expect terrible times in this present age as those who do not love God choose to act with treachery and slander against those who do love God. That is normal. It should not be a surprise. But it's not just the outside, is it? It's not just outside persecution. We've got to expect people from within as well, to have a form of ungodliness, or rather a form of godliness, but deny its power in the present age. Very sadly, there was an article about the dismissal of the lead pastor of the Hillsong Church in New York because of his sexual immorality. 
Much was made of his friendship with Justin Bieber and his celebrity status. That's what I expected the journalist to write. But what I didn't expect the journalist to write were these words coming up on the screen. I am not religious. So it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their belief should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Sad, isn't it? It is the grace of God should make us feel wonderfully uncomfortable in these last days. But you see, here's the threat from within in these last days. We keep on thinking about the threat outside, but what's about the threat inside? Are we teaching the grace of God in such a way that it just seems to share 90% of the values of this world? Because if it does, then perhaps we don't really understand the grace of God. It's not cheap grace. As Bonhoeffer called it, it's costly. Do you remember Copernicus? The great Copernicus who went against the establishment of his day by teaching that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the other way around? I mean, in, in that day, it was just bizarre. How could that possibly be? And I wonder whether we can do the same as we live in this age, as we teach the grace of God, as we teach the scriptures. It's almost as if, here's my life, and Jesus revolves around me and my purposes. So I'll do this job, and I'll go in this way, and I'll go to this church, and I'll do my church shopping, and I'll find everything that suits me, and Jesus will revolve around my plans and my purposes and my comfort. But if I really understand the grace of God, if I really understand that Jesus is the center of the action, then, then it's his plans and purposes that my life is to revolve around. My plans, my purposes, my career, so-called, my family, my church, everything revolves around him and his plans, not the other way around. It ought to feel wonderfully uncomfortable. And I take it that's why we read verses 11 and 12. Right? For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's how we're to live. But here's a question for you. How does the grace of God teach us, instruct us? to say no to ungodliness. We know it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, but how does it do so? Now, I'm gonna, I do this at university, but I'm gonna do it with you, I hope you don't mind. Can you chat with the person next to you for a moment? You answer that question for yourself with the person next to you. How does the grace of God teach us to renounce ungodliness? We know it says to renounce ungodliness, but how, okay? Just have a chat for about 30 seconds or a minute or so.
Okay. I'll get you back together again. I'd, I'd love to hear some thoughts if that's all right. Is that okay? Can I, uh, can I wander over this side? Does anybody have any thoughts? You have been talking. I will pick on someone and people that I don't know. That's even worse, isn't it? So that'd be great. Anybody willing to share just what, what thoughts you had just in your conversation? I've got all day. Yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Taste, tasting the grace of God instead of a Macca's diet is what you're saying, is, is what's going to motivate us to say no to ungodliness. Yeah. Thank you. Any other thoughts on this side? The grace of God is all about God giving selflessly to us. Yes. The world says it's all about me, but I can get. Yeah, yeah. So it's about God giving to us rather than it's about me. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Again, I, I still want to drill down a little bit more, but how does that actually instruct us to say no, right? So it, it, is, it is the instruction. Um, there, uh, this is David Williams, by the way, a good friend from Adelaide. Uh, I'm going to quote another David Williams from Melbourne. Uh, so, okay, but, but this David Williams is worth getting to know, by the way. Uh, he's a <laughs> terrific brother. Let me go back a long way. Uh, there is a David Williams who uh, trains missionaries at CMS um, St Andrews Hall here, uh, and he's a terrific guy. I, I think the sun shines out of his backside, basically. He's a, <laughs> he's a terrific guy um, in all sorts of ways. Uh, David is one of the most helpful people in training people about cultural worldviews. Uh, and, and he's got a great article in the website. Okay, So some of you, I'm sure, will remember this. He talks about how people from different cultures uh, understand uh, things and make decisions uh, in different ways. So firstly, if you come from a culture where uh, there is um, you know, right and wrong, uh, guilt and innocence are important, uh, then your inner voice is an inner lawyer. Right? Uh, so you make decisions that this is right, this is wrong. It's an inner lawyer that tells you that. And the inner lawyer will say, well, you'll be rewarded for your innocence and punished for your guilt. And if you're feeling that, you're going, yeah, 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 that's right. That's how I make decisions. Uh, it may be that you come from a shame-honor culture where you don't have an inner lawyer, but what you have is, wait for it, an inner grandmother. Right? <laughs> an inner grandmother says, shame on you. Shame on you for doing that. You know, it's that from Mulan movie, where the grandmother is, shame on you, you know, for doing that. And you feel the shame or the honor, right? And some of us can relate to that, right? But what is the culture today? What is the worldview today? It's the so-called pain and pleasure culture, isn't it? So it's not an inner lawyer or an inner grandmother, but wait for it, an inner therapist. Yes, indeed. An inner therapist. You avoid the punishment of pain and you seek the reward of pleasure. It's the lifestyle of this present age, isn't it, where people, quote, are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Jeremy Bentham, uh, whose quote is coming up, he's the father of the philosophy of utilitarianism, you know, getting the greatest outcome or greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. He made up this DNA of pain and pleasure. Isn't it? Nature has placed humankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. 
It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. So I want to suggest to you that there's probably a relationship with all those three things in, in some sense in terms of how we make decisions ethically. And in all these worldviews, note, the reward of the carrot is honour, innocence, pleasure. And the punishment or stick, if I can put it that way, is shame or guilt or pain. Have you not felt that? You know, even in ministry, you feel the shame of not doing something or you, you feel the, the honour of having done something well uh, and that's the kind of motivation to keep on doing what you're doing. And sadly, that's how many think God instructs us or trains us in the end, isn't it? It's punishment and reward. Carrot or stick and carrot. Does that make sense? A carrot being honour or innocence or pleasure, but the stick being shame or guilt or pain. And that's how people make decisions to live in life. But how does the grace of God work in this? See, Jesus was punished for us. The stick fell on him. He became our shame. He became our guilt at the cross. He suffered the pain of bearing his father's wrath. Verse 13 again, our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, how does God purify us for good works? Again, remember verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. See, the lie that we fall prey to because of the devil is that God rewards us for good behavior and punishes us for bad behavior. And if you think about it, is that not how so many, even in our churches, seek to live their lives? We're not reading enough Bible. Bad. Punishment. Or we're going to church more. Good. Reward. But the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie. For what God's grace reveals is the love of the Father who gives us everything he has. First his Son to redeem us and then his Spirit to renew us. As Ray Galea puts it, God gave us his best when we were at our worst. With grace as our fuel for good works, then, how do we live in the present age? Well, firstly, we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. But again, how do we do this? This still feels like, here's a photo, kind of beating it out of yourself like a child beats a piñata. Isn't that how you sometimes feel about sin? You, uh, you, you feel like, oh, this is shame in me. I just want to... Beat it out of you. Beat it out of myself. Uh, do you know that historically, piñatas were actually shaped as a pot with seven points to represent the so-called seven deadly sins? 
I think it's in, within the realms of Roman Catholicism in Latin America in particular, and they did this as an exercise to deal with sin, right? It's, it's definitely the stick, literally. And the person hitting it was blindfolded to represent faith, symbolically beating sin out of your body. Indeed, there were practices described in the New Testament, you might recall, called asceticism, involving severity to the body, in which the very same idea existed to literally beat the sin out of your body. And self-harm was a religious practice to deal with sin and shame. And those of us who've had anything to do with thinking about self-harm will know that that's what a person who is self-harming is going through. There's this sense of shame and hurt and pain. John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Hands up if you've read it. Yeah, a handful of us have. Uh, there is a much more readable version these days uh, that's been uh, helpfully edited by a guy named Kelly Capick, uh, who recently lectured, gave a set of lectures at Moore College, I understand. Uh, and it's a terrific read, and he's made it ever so more readable. This book, Mortification for Sin, uh, sounds like the beating sin out of your body approach to life, doesn't it? In fact, he actually has that lovely phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And it's true. But listen to what else he wrote. Have a look at the quote. When men and women can plod on in their profession and not be able to say when they had any living sense of the love of God or of privileges which we have in the blood of Christ, I know not what they can have to keep them from falling into snares. It's not exactly beating a piñata approach, is it? A guy named Ian Hamilton put it this way, <clears throat> our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but the lack of our acquaintedness with our privileges. That is, the best agent for change is to become more acquainted with the grace of God rather than beating yourself up. Now, there's a place for right guilt. Please don't misunderstand me. But when there is that right guilt, the place to go to is the foot of the cross. It's grace. Grace. Now, think about it. Why do we sin? Because sin deceptively holds out some promise of lasting pleasure, doesn't it? I mean, you think about the last sin that you consciously committed. I know there's a million unconsciously committed sins that you've committed, right? But that you can think of, what was it that drew you to sin? And why do we sin? Because we want to. There's something pleasurable about it. That lack of self-control with food, porn, greed, gossip, that'll give you pleasure to some extent. But it will slowly give you pain. And it will slowly kill you. Uh, Owen's right. 
be killing sin or it will be killing you. But the way to kill sin in the strength of the Holy Spirit is by trusting the promise that grace holds out rather than the promise that sin holds out. It's a matter of trust rather than ugh, effort. But the trust is still hard, isn't it? It's still a great struggle, isn't it? To say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, listen to how Peter described it in 1 Peter chapter 5 on the screen. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, what's suffering there? It's saying no to the temptation of the devil. That's suffering. We may not be suffering in terms of physical persecution like our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or North Korea. But we suffer every time we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It's hard, isn't it, to trust the promises of God when the promise of sin is so pleasurable. It's suffering. There's a deep tissue connection between temptation and suffering. Saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil is a battle. Read the book of Revelation. Um, Rory asked me the question about you know next generation and so on, and I can see, and, and in terms of even churches, uh, I see so many delightful things. I see so many areas where it's fragile. But isn't that the scene of the churches in Revelation two and three? It's exactly that's normal Christianity. That's normal church life through the beauty that we saw in chapter 2 today, but the, it, the beauty in the midst of conflict, of trial. And that's why Owen implores us to intentionally kill indwelling sin daily in the strength of the Holy Spirit before they get nourished in this present age. And that's what I think that book is about. It's really helpful. In fact, he works... He even understands that people are wired differently and we have different temperaments and different temperaments can mean different kinds of temptation to sin. And so it's just wonderfully applied in so many ways, uh, as the, the way that Murray is talking about it, is applying it. He, he goes through that grid of thinking through, well, if you've got this kind of wiring, perhaps this kind of temptation is going to be even stronger. So this is how you say no to that ungodliness. And you ponder it each day each morning before it takes any root what am i likely to be tempted by today this morning for these reasons meditate daily on what sin we know can take root before they take root and put them to death by meditating on the grace of god Remembering that it's not I, but through Christ in me, by his Holy Spirit. Uh, listen to Owen again. Let a soul exercise itself to a communion with Christ. Note, in the good things of the gospel. Pardon of sin, fruits of holiness, hope of glory, peace with God, joy in the Holy Ghost, dominion over sin. And he shall have a mighty preservative against all temptations. 
It's the gospel that will help us to say no. So dwell on the gospel. Dwell on his grace. Edith Cherry did. Hands up if you know Edith Cherry. Anybody know Edith Cherry? I don't mean personally. <laughs> she, she, she lived until 1872. Now, at 16 months old, she contracted polio. Uh, age 12, she had a stroke. At the age of 25, she died from a fatal stroke. 25 years of life. She had every reason to give up her struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But instead, she wrote hymns, hymns to meditate on the grace of God. One of those hymns, perhaps you'll know, is entitled, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. Do you know that song? Listen to the third verse of this hymn. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day, thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. Although every believer like Edith Cherry engages in a life and death struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil in this present age, it'll be a confident struggle, brothers and sisters. A confident struggle because of the promise of God that is held out by his grace in our lives and in our ministries, knowing that God only has one last item on the agenda, the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to that day because on that day, this present age will disappear. On that day, the tension of Christian existence will be resolved on that day, we will no longer struggle. On that day, Jesus will appear again with future grace to judge his enemies and take his people home. On that day, there will be no more selfishness. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more crying or pain. And we will be with God and we will see him face to face in undiluted Glory. Is that not a day to long for? As we confidently struggle in this present age, knowing that Jesus is on his throne. Hallelujah. Please pray with me. We thank you, dear Father, that in your mercy you sent Jesus to appear and to live, to die the death that we deserve, to rise that we may have life with him and to 
pour out your spirit to renew us so that we might live these regenerated lives in a confident struggle. And as we do so, Father, keep us looking to him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And we pray this for his glory. Amen. This talk has been brought to you by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Visit our website at thegospelcoalition.org.au to find other resources for your encouragement.